Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible. From the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Hello, and welcome back to the Side Woo Podcast. This week, we have Heather Holt on the episode. She is the managing director of Adobe Books in San Francisco, which is a bookstore, gallery, and activated multifaceted public gathering and program space, which has a long-standing commitment to non-hierarchy as an administrative practice. Plus, there's a super comfortable couch for lounging on right in the middle of the shop. Basically, Adobe Books has a crazy rich history and is a link back to the SF days before the tech boom and even the dot-com era for those of you old enough to remember that phase. Heather has been a part of the San Francisco art scene for a long time and has been involved in running the Seeker Awards through SFMOMA, was on the board of the San Francisco Arts Commission, and the list goes on. But enough about professional life and building a career because we also spend a lot of time discussing What happens when everything that you have built blows up in your face, either by choice or by circumstance? So with that as a juicy trailer, stay tuned for this week's episode of The Side Woo. And as always, we welcome your comments and feedback. Find us on Instagram or online at thesidewoo.com. Heather, are you in Glendale right now or? No, I'm in the middle of the valley. Were you in high school in the 90s or the 80s? I graduated in 95. So your high school was shaped by grunge and Gen X. Oh, yeah. Yes. Because I learned about the valley through pop culture and like Valley Girl and the bangs and the mall and everything. But by the time you were in high school, that wasn't really. Oh, no, that's all real. Yeah. I should send you a headshot of that. My seventh grade shot, which is like waterfall bangs, lots of hairspray, you know, lace and weird blazers and lunch boxes. Definitely Nana, the clothing store and plaid tights and, you know, cheap Swap meat clothes. Just so you know what was happening on the other coast in exactly that time. This was in Manhattan. We all had guidebooks for how to be a valley girl. And we would go through the guidebook and basically take our clothes and turn them into valley girl clothes and then study the speech habits and then record ourselves making conversations and be like, we're going to play valley girl. We could have been friends. I could have been your mentor. I am a Complete Valley girl. I'm actually suppressing my Valley accent as we speak because I was taught to like, that wasn't, you know, how you wanted to enter the world. What sign are you, Heather? Wait, can we guess? Are you like, are you a Gemini? No, but I like, I I have nothing in common with Gemini. So I love that that's a guess. You have nothing in common with them? I don't think so. Gemini energy has come into my space recently. It's definitely a sign I've always been afraid of. Because I'm a fire sign and the air signs have always been a little too like elevating, I think, for for me before I started working on my grounding practices. Give you a guess. So you got the fire. Well, my other guess was Aries. No. Okay. I love it. I'm all out. I love it. I'm a spectator in this sport right now. 
I won't torture you, but I recently came out as a sun Sagittarius again, which is really fun because I'd been, my spiritual teacher, she uses Vedic astrology. So for the past several years, when I was working with her more intensely, I was identifying well, not actually even identifying as anything, but she put me into the sun Scorpio bucket, which was really confusing to me after growing up with astrology and always loving astrology and talking about astrology. And as soon as she told me that, I, I kind of went home and was just so, so perplexed. And like, you know, when you're working with a mentor and there's this new modality or something presented that it's like, it kind of took a astrology break for several years as a sun Scorpio, a nice way to spend dark night of the soul years because the Scorpio is, you know, sex, death, birth, digging the bottom of the well. And I have a Scorpio ascendant and a Scorpio moon in Western astrology. So it was actually kind of a really cool, like, let's really get into this. Like, let's really get into the grief and get into the intensity that maybe I hadn't really been looking at for a long time, I think was, was really appropriate for where I was at in my life at the time of meeting this particular teacher. Last year, I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm ready to be a Sagittarius again. It just kind of happened naturally. It wasn't something that I'd like purposely planned, but I felt like there were some chapters that had closed and the Sagittarius part of me is so much fun mm -hmm. that there's been this real embracing of joy again. And so that last year in December 8th was my birthday and it was the first year that I had spent as a Sagittarius again um, and had like this really joyous, fun um, birthday with Annie Sprinkle and like all my besties and like Fun. my idols and just like made a real commitment to this next decade of my life being 45 to 55. I do have my natal chart from my, my great, like my mom's cousin. That's like lovingly handwritten when I was born. It's a total treasure and she really nailed it. So I was just revisiting it this morning, thinking about oh, just cool. even talking about astrology is yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> Well, I know Jessica Lignadu says don't read a baby's birth chart for a couple of years because you don't want to go in having all these preconceived notions about your child, but the temptation. I'm pretty there. sure my mom disregarded everything that her cousin wrote. And Perfect. Yeah. Never to be revisited. <laughs> it definitely talks a lot about clairvoyance and um, like intuitive perception and your daughter's going to be very smart. You have to trick her into doing things and so, you know, like you can't just say no, like she'll always want to know why. It's definitely true to my nature today, even just in my exploration and discovery and like how I approach my life and things I'm interested in and dedicated to. It's just a toolbox. I think astrology and kind of how we enter the world into this like moment of time. And I just visualize it as, as part of like our soul contract that we made to ourselves. So like, I want to achieve X, Y, and Z as a human entity on planet earth. And so if I'm born in this particular spectrum of this moment and this second on planet earth, then I will be accessing certain conjunction and oppositions and whatever it is, but it's almost like a purposeful tool to understand the map of one's chosen interests of challenge in this lifetime is, is kind of how mm -hmm. it is, is sort of how I view it. Yeah. I like that. That's kind of how I view it too. Like it, describes you rather than dictates what you're doing. It describes the energies that you can choose to work with, but, and you can choose the higher or the lower vibration of, of the energies too. I mean, it's not clairvoyant, but it is nice to understand one's patterns, the overall strengths and weaknesses and challenges and why something is blocking me in a certain way. 
you know, like, why do I hit the wall with this thing over and over and over again? It's like when I hit my limit of how to solve something, I feel like it's a good little pickaxe for how to get through a personal block. I had a colleague that said something similar and she's from India and her teaching around astrology was you would go to an astrologer if there was an issue, you wouldn't lean on astrology for your daily life per se, but that if there is an issue or like some sort of blockage or that there's something coming up where there's a struggle that astrologer could potentially give you access to a solution or, or a pathway or some sort of key to like unblocking based on your chart. I think it is so comforting when you like run into something that is like non-judgmental elder wisdom, because we're all a little hungry for it, you know? Just to have some sense that this path has been tread and somebody has wisdom and they're here to share it with you. And that is not how our society is structured right now. I love that, that this passed down knowledge and putting it through these kind of impersonal channels like astrology or tarot. I think that's the joy of going to a tarot reader. They're using this third party system to help you explain what's going on. I don't know. I mean, there's something more ancient about these more mystical traditions, whereas Western medicine and therapy feel like newer approaches that not that they're not also useful, but do you feel like when you go to therapy that you're getting elder wisdom? I do. I was really conscious of wanting a therapist who was older than me and wanting a therapist who had actually in their life lived through things I hadn't lived through yet. Because, you know, there's a lot of like intellectual ability in our peer networks and a lot of going through things in real time. But I wanted somebody with the lived experience to um, just know and have gone through things that I was going to be facing as I went up through my 30s and 40s. So yes, I just love a good, a good elder moment. I mean, literally like elder, any place that's like beyond what you have reached yet. I did have that experience with my last therapist where she was in her like early sixties and she was single for a long time, didn't get married until she was like 50, which, you know, that's like a tough ask for someone where they can really understand I was single forever. So I know exactly what you're going through instead of just being like, I was single for a couple of years before I got married. So I can help you through this. That was pretty powerful. And no one in my family could help me through that. So it is interesting with elders in our being in North America, United States of America, and that, that there's a disconnect from elders and mm -hmm. because there's this idea of like, you have to leave home, you have to leave the nest and be independent and that we mm -hmm. don't live in multi-generational households and the elders are like put somewhere. You know, if you think about like yeah. elders here are like, they're put away. They're not really integrated into the communities. It's horrifying. I've actually been looking for a mentor because I am actively trying to be an elder and also like, multi-generational eldership too. So like even with, I know we're going to get to the bookshop, but where I spend most of my time is being an elder to people in their twenties, but also realizing that the people in the twenties that I'm being an elder to are also being an elder to people in their teenage years. And so that's kind of an interesting process of thinking about eldership as a lifetime practice and not just specific to problems, but integrating eldership into like our daily lives. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what the context is that you're talking about. 
I'm part of Adobe Bookshop, which is in the Mission in San Francisco, and currently like a abstract manager of sorts. We're a non-hierarchical space. We just became a 501c3 and we're pretty much volunteer run. So my main responsibilities is managing volunteers and volunteerism and programs. We have a gallery, we have music program, we have just a creative space, a community space. So I'm in my 40s now, and I have been involved in the bookshop for about 20 years. Because it's been around since the 90s? 89, yeah, as a sole proprietorship. And then the gallery program started by Amanda Eicher in the early 90s has continued as a backroom gallery and has had a continuous thread of programming over time. And and in the new space, it's been on 24th Street for 10 years. We shifted from a single owner to a co-op to now a nonprofit. So so my biggest contribution is just managing the the humans and making sure that the space runs and operates and is open to the public and all the paperwork is done. But also this idea of guidance for people that are, you know, 20 years younger than me, 25 years younger than me, 30 years younger than me. And that's, that's kind of a really exciting thing. And that's one reason I've been looking for mentors and who are elders is, is because I, I just feel that that's really important work to, to invest in. Adobe books. Like it is such an emblem of the Bay area. I just want to hear about how you think about Adobe books and San Francisco in the room is everybody. And it's old people and young people and rich people and people with homes and people without homes. And there is like fancy art happening. And then there's also like thrift store art happening and non-traditional programs where you go on like street tours and have Mm -hmm. non-traditional lectures. There used to be like a a tarot reader or something like Back when it was on 16th Street, there was like that person kind of sitting in the lobby. I don't know if it was reading tarot or just like general fortune teller. Do you know who I'm talking about? All of that is true. Like every, all of that. Yeah. And it's still the same. You know, there's still, there's still a rotating cast of, of people in all of those roles. We're a generalist bookstore. You know, there's definitely a curation style to books there. You know, we carry philosophy, we carry literature, we carry art books, we carry fiction and contemporary fiction. It's it's a very big range of, of humans as well as books. And recently, right before the pandemic, we had just expanded our space to be able to accommodate more of the venue aspect that has been developing over time. So a lot of experimental music shows had been coming through, comedy shows, performances, films. So we got rid of this giant desk that was in the middle of the room and scaled back into this tiny little desk and then got rid of this big table and and put this beautiful couch in the middle of the room and then it, and then got rid of another table and put another couch in the middle of the room so we've essentially like anti-intuitively to retail merchandising have gotten rid of all of the merchandising but but have created this like really beautiful open space that's very flexible for all of these things to happen at any given time and that's still very real. Like all of your experiences that you just listed off as having at the bookstore, th- those still exist, and which is really cool. One project at the old space that I remember is someone reorganized all the books by color. Chris Cobb, he lives in New York City. He's, yeah, it's a, that, yeah, that was, that was like pre-anthropology. Really you know, like something. Nobody did that. <laughs> yeah. They found things under those books when they took that. I mean, there were like petrified like rodents and, you know, that 
things that hadn't because nothing had been brought away from those walls in like two decades. Well, and there was like a Barry McGee mural at the old one, right? Or Chris Johansson with the like the mapping of all the different. Oh, artists. that's Amanda Iker. Amanda Iker. Yeah. Who's the director of NIAD now oh, in the okay. Richmond and who was the founder of the of the backroom gallery? It was like a map of all these Bay Area artists and musicians and how they were all connected. And so it was, I don't know what kind of chart that is, but it was kind of genealogy. Yeah, like genealogy chart. Yeah, that was a very special project. And the Oakland Museum actually had her recommissioned her to do that piece. It was something like 2014. And it was one of those amazing things where like if you were sort of even nominally in the Bay Area art scene, like you knew people who were on the wall and it was super fun to see people you knew. It was really special to see that piece recreated. Yeah, we saved it from the trash pile when they were getting rid of the exhibition and actually stored them in my garage for a couple years, those panels from the Oakland Museum. And then we actually had them chopped up into squares because then we were going to like auction them off. And then we reinstalled them into the gallery in the 24th Street space. And at the last minute, Gregory Lind and some other donors came forward and actually with Larry Rinder at the Berkeley Art Museum had it accessioned. So it's actually that piece has been like transformed one, two, three, and now like a fourth iteration of it is owned by the Berkeley Art Museum in their permanent collection. Oh, that's so cool. But the lineage, but it's like history and mapping and like it, it definitely lends to this idea of record keeping and connectivity and, and memory and, and relationships. I don't want to say golden era as a negative for the Bay Area right now because that's a little touchy, but I will say it was one of the golden eras of San Francisco art scene where it was a mission school and this community that was really productive before it started becoming less accessible for people to move there and start up as an artist. And there was this semi-cohesive group of artists that all came up together in a way that I feel like we haven't seen since. And maybe we just haven't had the writer coin the name the way that Glenn Helfen did. But And there's been other periods where I feel like there's been tons of artist-run spaces and tons of artists you know, taking on other projects and everything. So I'm not saying that there hasn't been productivity since then. But when I moved to SF, it was just ending and it was mythologized and people were like copying it. The art was still being really influenced by that. And it's since phased out into like a new iteration. But I, I just remember that loomed very large in the, the energy of the scene when I first got in town and like Jack Hanley, and just like the grunginess of the mission was really like intact at the time. That's still real. There. But not yeah. the way it was before it was like, you could not walk down Mission Street from 15th to 20th without running into any kind of like illicit behavior. I think we're in a different phase of that now. And it's it's just because I'm so immersed into that, to the artist scene. From my understanding of like where we're at now, we're in the post-mission school and maybe even like post-post-mission school. Multiple iterations beyond. Which is awesome. And, and interesting, and there was a show at the, gosh, I'm blinking, there was an artist in, included in it, and he was a young artist, and he's been very influential in the development of our current iteration at Adobe Books of, of this, like, comic, illustration, street art, anarchy, like, very, very punk, very, like, 
anti-authority and his name's Floyd Tangeman and he lives in New York at the moment, but a local San Francisco artist who is very influential to a lot of young artists who are working in the mission now who are working in comics and graphics and illustration. And he's a very much a connector and does a thing, a thing called Dead Crow Comics that has really informed my understanding of the new generation of this mission school. Like material approach even. Material, but also artists that were actually raised in the mission and actually born in the mission and went to school at like Soda or didn't just move to the mission from somewhere else, which I feel like like the original mission school artists, it was like people who had moved to the mission and there was this beautiful thriving music scene and, and art scene that still exists. It, it was of a moment, like you're saying, mythologized and written about and is a you know become a museum collection you know that there's a mission school and now but that's kind of what's so fascinating and I feel like what's so interesting is that Adobe's still steeped in that but no one's really writing about it yet I think I'd asked you Sarah about do I really need to send out press releases for people to write about our shows like don't they know because there's so many crazy things happening at the gallery and they're and they're so authentic to to the artists who who are from this area and who are who are still living there and and who are under 30 under 20 even the backroom gallery is definitely still raging we we have a new curator who came on last march and his name's carlos sandoval and he really took my i mean i guess it was advice and but it was very flippant advice to you should have a show every like two weeks because no one's using the gallery between those things and you come to an opening and then the artwork sits for a month and it was just kind of a thought and he really went for it and so he had shows two week shows and then they would close for a week and the shows this past year and even continuing to January of this year have been mostly solo artists some of them still youth between 18 and 24 some you know people in their 30s they're really intensive installation shows. So like people that are taking over the full gallery and doing full, full immersive installations. There's definitely a lot of graffiti adjacent artists. And it's really cool to introduce this new generation of artists to gallery culture. A lot of younger artists, maybe they don't know. They've never been to, a, you know, that, that there's a certain etiquette or like the art world, or if you went to art school, you're going through this pedigree and there's, there's rules and like, the connectivity of like certain people and how you like navigate the art world. And I feel like that's kind of gone out the window in some way in this particular, the group that we've been working with at the store is, is very DIY, very punk, very, you know, non-authoritarian, just not interested in necessarily spending $200,000 on their education so they can be an artist. They're just going for it. What could go wrong with going $200,000 into debt? It works out so well for right, as an artist. Exactly. I was like, who doesn't want to spend that much money? I do remember though, when I was teaching at SFAI and this was like 2012, 13, 14, 15. So it was culturally a different era and people, the kiddos, they're not kiddos, the young adults. I love, I really adored them. That sounds so patronizing, but they would ask me for advice about like, how do I show and how do I get to know people? And I always felt like I had to have this, like, hold your hand, deep eye contact and be like, the art world is really serious. And when you write emails to people, they're really serious. 
emails and they use serious words and you sign off by saying sincerely comma <laughs> like you know because they wanted to bring the energy of their youth and enthusiasm and like make it avant-garde I did have a professor who experimented with like all caps emails and that felt like so hardcore you know I was like whoa he can't even be bothered with punctuation I won't say the name, but some people might know who I'm talking about. I agree with you, Liz, about the culture. It's like very polite and very professionalized and have all your students email me however they want, because I, I receive messages from all, I'm like, oh, you want to do that? Great. Like, I don't even need to look at your resume. That's one thing that I, like you're talking about programs, like with the gallery, it's not based on resume. It's not based on where you went to school. I mean, the artist who's in the gallery now went to SFAI. So, I mean, there's there's definitely a connection to the art schools, but it's not a prerequisite. And there's also the music programming, which there's a strong Mills College lineage of, of sound musicians and noise artists. And our curator, Matt Robidoux, is doing a series of, has been over the last, I mean, three years now, even through the pandemic, doing a series of noise shows. But it's really not based on your resume, which I think is a, is a definitely a shift in maybe how, how artists are being valued and, and we're expanding how we, how we value. And like you were saying about language and you don't have to normalize your speech anymore to be respected. There maybe hopefully is, is that expectation that as an artist, you don't have to be of a certain lineage in your education or who you are, where you went to school or how you were raised to be respected. And I think that's part of a larger systemic, like, well, what were the rules based on? They were based on like a certain financial background, certain educational class, whiteness, patriarchy. So once you start unpacking like one of these things, like, okay, a radio voice is supposed to sound like you're from Ohio. Well, who lives in Ohio and what person in Ohio? The more you unpack that, the more you're like, oh, these aren't just guidelines for professionalism, they're really excluding people who are anything but white male. Some of the larger tech firms with their hiring processes have now stopped hiring based on schools, which was a really huge part of how they would hire and review resumes and also with GPAs. And so now they're just offering these online courses where you can just do a boot camp from home, like on demand. And I think that's kind of in that same spirit. I think maybe galleries are following suit because people are not willing to do what I did and take out like six figures and loans and ruin their lives for like 20 years. I just feel like it's part of a larger push to be more inclusive in like who is at the table because it's not just that you needed these things to be at the table. It's like the reason that those are the things is because of who they excluded, right? Yeah, I mean- I remember trying to explicitly use language to describe to people how the art world functioned. I really like when transparency is provided for systems that are meant to be completely opaque. And, you know, I would basically describe it how I experienced it, which is like, you can never really ask for exactly what you want. Like if you want this curator to look at your work, you can't actually fully say, this is what I want. 
you have to sort of sidestep into this liminal space. Nobody's really saying what they want. And we're all, you know, you have to read between the lines and let's pretend this is all happening outside of the economy. You don't have a job. No one has a job. It's not a big deal to be asked to pay for $10,000 worth of framing for, you know, whatever. But when you say it out loud, that's fucking nuts. Yeah. And there's a lot of mystery around how do you get a show? How do you get a gallery visit? How do and like, well, my advice young and our artists was always, well, if you want to show with this gallery, you show up and start going to their events and meet the artists that they're involved with. But you can never ask for a show. Never actually say. I would say there is a caveat to that. And one of the people that I know has done well for herself has straight up asked friends, not the curators or whoever, but friends who show at these galleries, like, I want to show there and just say it. And that kind of it like breaks the code so much that you almost are shocked by it. But I think it's really served her well, where now she's showing at like a high level blue chip gallery because she's just been like, my friends are showing at these galleries. I want to show there. And that presumably the friend like hooks them up with that's real I would say you have to bring your art to the connection but really the connection and finding that person is like I almost want to say it's like 95% of it and you do have to bring it once you're there but this person showed me that like wow asking for it actually really does work even though I always felt like you're not supposed to say it You can't say it to the gallerist which yes you're right about that pathway being that's a very real connectivity When I first started working in the arts in San Francisco, I was interning at Southern Exposure and, you know, fresh out of college, fresh in San Francisco. It's like, and everyone was talking about the Sega Art Award. And I'd be like, what is it? What is it? They'd be like, it's this mysterious group of people and you get nominated. You don't even know how, but like suddenly you receive a letter in the mail. And it was so intriguing to me because I love secrets and I love like <laughs> unlocking secrets. And I ended up working for Sika for, you know, several years after that. Well, and the name Sika is almost like secrets. Oh, <laughs> Sika, I've never thought Sika about secrets. that. Secrets. When the museum closed and reopened again and they were reinventing themselves, I was part of a lot of meetings about the future of Sika, and there was this thought among some people involved in the conversation that we should change the name of Sika because, oh, no one knows what that is, or, oh, it's the Society for the Encouragement of Contemporary Art. Like, what is a society? And, you know, all these kind of deep questions about, well, maybe we should change what the acronym stands for. But at that point, it had been 50 years because the organization and the Art Award was founded in 62. So it's a funny thing to think that you could rename or re, you know, uh, no one knows what this is anyways. It's so secret (laughs) and so opaque. And I think maybe you've been involved in that process, Sarah, with the Seagard Award. Well, Liz, um, too. The day that people get those emails, you're kind of holding your email and you're like, did you get the hidden wink? Were you invited to apply? something nice happen (laughs) to your email today? I mean, it's it's like so weird. No, it's totally weird. When I was working there, I was part of the transition from mailed letters of invitation to emails. I was also part of the transition. We used to take slides. And so I would set up three slide projectors in a room and 
six slides from each artist and so two in each one and I'd have three remotes and I'd be you know to do the review and I'd be you know coordinating this and we'd be going through like 200 times six that's a lot of slides to look at in one evening so we're doing them all at once and and also at the time photography was right on this borderline of being accepted as an acceptable medium when I started with Seacoast 2004 and painting and sculpture was the primary new media was like and eh, maybe you could submit a media piece or photography wasn't really like part of it yet so I, I did witness a lot of transitions in that program to be more open and inclusive. And now, I mean, I'm so proud of, so proud of the program and, and the artists and the curators that they've included and the lineage of the award. And it's really the one stable way that the, that the SFMOMA has, has contributed to the local arts community in a very, very meaningful way. Because if you have a show at, through SICA, the, the probability of being picked up by a blue chip gallery is, I mean, like 98%, you know, it's like your, your art career is, is it's true, is solidified at that point. I will say they do not give enough money to the artist. No, that was always an issue. They give like $5,000 per person for a museum solo show, quote unquote. That's double what it was when I was there. Well, if you look at like Kathy Liu's work that she did for the Sierra I'm sorry, that girl spent like an entire year making those ceramics. With apprentice artists helping, you know, I mean, make the pieces. Like, that probably barely covered the cost of the actual materials. Oh, it's not meant to. No, but it should be. It's like going on RuPaul's Drag Race where it's like, okay, cool. You get invited to be on the show and now you're going to have to spend like $100,000 on dresses and makeup, you know, to make sure that you rise to the challenge, which... In the case of RuPaul, you actually see that money back, whereas at the Sika, the monetization of Kathy's install, like a museum has to buy that piece. And I don't know. I mean, I hope it does get sold. But I just think like you can't expect an artist to go into debt for a museum show that you invite them to like nine months ahead of time, you know? I just feel like it's like that across the board. It is, but you don't like most... Most museum shows, you get more time, whereas the Sika timeline this year, you're announcing in like April and then the shows in December. That is not even a full year. You need to give these people time to. It's still a modest program. Which is too bad considering it's I a, agree. you know, internationally renowned museum. No, no. I think that's always been, it's been you know, a critique. Yeah. I mean, I gave geez, 10 years of my life to the Seek Art Award program, six as an employee, and then four as a chair for the anniversary, and then as the chair for the group, which was really cool and such an honor. So I, it's complicated. Were you in charge of the money? I mean, like you weren't the one being like, oh, this is how much we should give them. No, it's definitely contingent on the, the museum, um, right? Well, also the membership for many years that dictated the amount that was available. So when I was there, I don't have any understanding of how the show is funded now. So just let me be clear. It's been nine years since I've been involved in the organization, but it's, it was based around the members, you know, and the membership. And there was not a lot of extra money. It was very like shoestring. And it's interesting because you do wonder like, well, how are other things funded? You know, is there fundraisers for other parts of the museum? Like with the Met, you know that the membership fees and the, the entrance fees aren't the only way that the museum is getting funded. 
And so you just wonder why is this not a priority to support local artists? The elephant in the room, like why is that not more of a priority? Why isn't marketing sending out emails specifically about Sika? Why isn't Sika advertised on the poles of the lamps across, you know, Mission Street? I don't mean to get, I'm not down on, I think it's, I just rejoined as a member. And I almost worked for SFMOMA actually like in 2021. I don't know what you were doing when you first started, but I was going to step in as like one year employee for the Sika, but then ended up, they were like, you know, as an artist, we just don't think that this is the right role for you to take on because you wouldn't be eligible for Sika and whatever else. Yeah, there are a lot of politics. I guess I brought that up because of what we were talking about in sort of this opaque art world. Like, how do you enter, right? Like, how do you get in? How do you break in? And I guess I moved away from the museum because I wanted to be in a more democratic space that had more freedom and that was a better fit for me personally as just as an outlier, as somebody that's just kind of always been an outlier and has no, um, I have no identification. Like I don't identify the labels, you know, like you go to, and and I love that about Adobe is that there's no, really no labels are like definitions. Like it's very loose and not stagnant. And I, you know, I love museums, but that it's for me, like my true love is with really grassroots arts organizations. One of the things that came up as I was thinking about what we were going to talk about was this idea of being a queen and being in power and thinking about the crown and how you start as this person and really become like a figurehead and the self-sacrifice, especially as women to occupy this space of power and all the complexity of what it is to be a woman who's seen that way. The idea that the more successful a woman is, the less she's liked. And so the juggling act that women have to do like kings don't necessarily have to be also beautiful and like well coiffed and you know likable or nurturing and just like the complexity of that and how hard it is to navigate power as a woman and I feel like that you have kind of run into that time and again with Sika and then again now like with Adobe you're like thinking about the elder role maybe in a different way than you were before But then also, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it, but we were talking about after your marriage, how your community shifted just because of a natural split in who were your people versus who were your ex-husband's people. And the, the way that you held your own after something like that in a community that is so tight that you were so embedded in and And I feel like there is something of this like queen energy. And I'm thinking specifically the queen of England where you're like a little bit of your own island. And is this making sense at all? Well, yeah, you can't be concerned about the the fuckery of it all. Like, you know, it's like exactly what Queen Elizabeth said. And my middle name's Elizabeth. I had a good colleague when I was going through a lot of my own personal transitions and which included divorce, but also included after I left the museum, I worked for the SF Open Studios program for Artspan as an executive director. And I did that for four years and that all like imploded 
and I left kind of under duress from the organization. And it was a blessing. I'm glad that that happened. But it also happened during this period of splitting up with my ex-husband. We had a gallery in our home together up in Noe Valley called True Silver, which then he renamed Goodnight Projects. And it was, it was a project that we did for three years as a couple and a collaborative. Much like Adobe, it was a generosity project. You know, we had a really cool storefront that had been occupied by Paul Mullins, who was somebody, an artist that I had known since Southern Exposure. And, you know, there's a, as you know, the community, like you, you stay for a while and you get to know people and, and people give you things and things get handed down and spaces, you know, transition. And so like, I, I was really excited about the work that my ex-husband and I were doing there and as True Silver and um, and as Artsman, as an executive director, and I was also at the time, you know, chair of the SICA group, which also made me part of the board of trustees as an ex officio member of trustees. So I was, you know, going to board meetings with Charles Schwab, who was the president and all of the people and, you know, Nora Stone, which was a huge mentor, you know, fashion and otherwise on, you know, to talk about Queens, you know, rest in peace. She's, she did, was, did pass away a few years ago and was definitely a huge part of that community there. But, but there's always going to be people that want to knock you down. I think it is what my colleague told me is sort of when I was going through this like moment of collapse and, you know, the tower, the tower, the tower, the, it's, it's here. It's like everyone, everything's exploding. And, and, and that was sort of resonated as like, if you are in a position of power and maybe especially as a woman in power, there were always going to be haters and there's always going to be people that resent your power or that want to take you down and not in like a paranoid way. And I'd never even considered that because I'd just been like, la la la, I'm a Sagittarius, just living my life, like going on my horse, like, you know, climbing my career path. And I think in the end, having all of those things happen at once, leaving my home, leaving my relationship, leaving my community, leaving my job. And they say, don't make, don't make too many changes at once. But like literally within a year, it was like, wow, everything that could be completely different is different about Heather, <laughs> even her name. Like I was, you know, going by professionally Heather Villiard. So if you, if you look up Heather Holt on the internet, I have a very strange Google presence considering all of the career accomplishments I've had over the last two decades. It's just, I'm non-existent, but you know, but it's because it's all under this married name. And so in terms of Queens, it's something like if you're in power, people always want to take you out of power. Like that there's always this like, not like watch your back, but just be aware that, you know, power is not forever. And a natural criticality of those in power or people that we perceive to be powerful, because it's not even that like you were technically in roles of power, but then there's also the power in being yourself, you know, where that's not necessarily a position that someone can knock you down from, but then I think it gets more into that like unconscious bias against what you're allowing yourself as a woman to do. And then to see someone else doing the thing that you haven't allowed yourself to do. So I will criticize it. You know, I don't know what types of reactions you got, but I can assume that there is probably a lot of self limitations being projected onto you? Well, as I became in my power and as I, when I left my relationship it was the first time that I have felt empowered and to be who I was. And I started, I was being pushed towards new teachers and, and, and I started working with a teacher who was an acupuncturist and a psychic. And that was all very new for me. The first time I ever went to her office for an appointment, I was laying in her office and receiving treatment and completely 
I guess it, in retrospect, it, it was some sort of clairvoyance, visualized everything that was going to happen that night. And everything that happened that night after leaving her office completely shifted the future and put into play me getting divorced, me leaving Artspan, me becoming like an outcast, me becoming, you know, but, but ultimately me figuring out who I was and that what happened? <laughs> How PG <laughs> is your, is your program? Not at all. It was, it was very exciting. Well, I visualized, I visualized connecting with my current partner who I'm with now and, you know, being a married person, you know, connecting with another person who was also married at the time is really taboo. I mean, not, I mean, like God, it throws the whole fabric of society into question when you're in that community. It does like because, yeah. yes, because it, it is so scary. And I think that it's so scary already to be in a long-term relationship with one person and finding your person. It's like scary enough to even just like approach even the concept of being married or, you know, being in a normative relationship. And so for me, it wasn't something that I was seeking per se, but I was seeking more grounded experience with my with myself and my authentic self. And so as I met, as I saw all of these things in her office and then left and then literally the entire night played out, like it literally was just this, oh, and there it is. And then mm, after that, it was chills. like, it just, everything shifted. I lost, geez, like 25 pounds in like oh, two wow. months and I left my home. I left the gallery. I left anything comfortable. I was living in a friend's like under the stairs closet room, like on a futon on the floor for a few months. I had nothing. I literally had nothing, but I was the happiest I'd ever been in my entire life. And it was so meaningful to me to have um, risked everything in order to come into my own happiness and authenticity that it was like a wild ride. It was a total wild ride. And then a year later, I left my job at Artspan and became a bartender at Savannah Jazz Club on 25th and, and Mission. I don't know if anyone ever went there. It was very Lynchian, like all the evenings with the house band. And it was like me and five people. And, you know, and it was just a very funny moment. And then that's really where my healing journey and everything kind of shifted and went this other direction. I ended up taking a hiatus from the art world from, I think it was 2015 is when I made a very conscious decision. That was then, this is now, and I'm going to do something else for a while. And I went back to school for holistic nutrition mm. and, you know, thought I was going to become like a nutritionist or, you know, oh, I I'm done with the art world. Several years later now, it's been funny to kind of come back into the roles that I put on pause for like probably about seven years. I am such a believer in not, and I don't mean a, when I say I'm a believer, it means I flawlessly execute this belief. I mean, it's just something like my highest self believes in and I execute it as any flawed individual does in a lifetime of being a human. But what happens when you're not letting fear make your decisions for you? It's such a simple thing to say and what it actually looks like is a lot of untangling of your ego from your choices and untangling of what you think might happen, allowing the knowledge that you don't know what's going to happen. So taking those chances without letting fear own everything. One example of that is that when I was teaching darkroom classes and I got pregnant, 
I felt really at a crossroads as an adjunct. I was like, I can't tell anybody I'm pregnant because I'm going to lose my job. And if I step away, I'm going to be replaced and I'll never get my job back. And that was my fear because you know what? That's so likely to happen. So I signed my contract for the fall and it was the summer and it was a break from the dark room. And I just like stressed and stressed and stressed about it. I was making myself sick over this decision. And it's a shit position to be in. I mean, now that I'm saying this out loud, it's fucking shitty. But I was so isolated as a teacher in that respect. So I finally was like, I can't handle this. And I emailed the dean and was like, this is what's happened. This is what's happening. I love this job, but I just have to say it out loud. Let the chips fall where they may. And that's what happened. And then I wound up actually, you know, taking a semester off and then coming back and teaching again. But just every instinct in me was basically hide it, hide it, hide it. And then at the last second, make something else up. I have a residency as the most important artist on planet earth, just something. It was one of the worst feelings. And I finally had to be like, I might actually lose this as a career path because of what's happening right now, but I can't let my fear of that tell me what decision to make. Anyway. Well, and like feel terrible about having to hide it. You know, I think it's the the downside of not following the thing that you're scared of is like you just start to spiral inward and you no longer can trust your instincts because all your instincts are telling you to do the thing that you're not doing. You know, when you don't follow your fears, it's not like automatically you always get the best option. You know, sometimes <laughs> it works out that way. But... Or like it doesn't reveal itself right away necessarily. But I do think like, if you do the thing that's like the light option, you're better off. I just recently quit my job because I was in a place where I would wake up every morning and just be dreading the the next eight hours. And I just felt like this is not why I'm here on this earth. And I don't think I'm supposed to feel this way every day going into my job. And I like try played all kinds of mental tricks where I'm like, what if I looked at it from this angle and was really grateful and you know, trying to use all the spiritual tools to try to make me feel more comfortable with this choice that I was making every day. And finally, I was just like, nope. And I currently have no proof that it was the right move other than I feel excited about every day. You know, I feel like I've not chosen that like with jobs that weren't going well in particular. And then like the thing that you want, like, kind of turns inward and it turns into this dark thing where it leaks out sideways or you get fired. Because, well, that's what I mean. Like, oh, that's real. <laughs> you, it leaks out where then you start acting in ways that subconsciously undermine you because you really still don't want to be right. there. So, there will, if you're not listening to it, and if you don't make those decisions in consent, I do believe that the universe will push you to be where you're supposed to be. And a lot of times that can be forced change. And I think this idea of outcasting can sometimes be a result of not listening to your intuition and being outcasted. Yes, I made a decision to change my life in a way that freaked people out because I was a pillar of certain people's careers or their communities. And it's like having a bunch of boats tied to your dock as a human. And you know, it's like I, overnight, I was just like, clip, 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 clip. Like, okay, everyone's on their own for a while. I'm 
going on my own journey. And that totally freaks people out because sometimes you don't realize that we are our own entities. But I think sometimes in my own belief around entity, it's like entity as human, Heather Holt, like on earth party, you know, that if you're not following your instincts and you're having resistance, like you said, leaving your job or should I leave my job or should I not leave your job or should I, you know, I'm pregnant. Should I work in a photography lab or not? Like that, that eventually you, if you don't make the answers that your soul path desires, then there will be forced change. And then that's where the struggle can, and the tension come. The change will happen to you instead of you choosing it. Yes. I mean, if you, if you don't learn the lesson in the softer way, the lesson is going to get punted at you in a much more dramatic kick in the head way. You know, the year before I left my relationship, my married relationship, I had started night terrors again since I was a child and I would wake up in the middle of the night with the dark, you know, like you look up and you're like, oh, the dark figure and the man and the, the male energy, dark figure trying to strangle you in your sleep. And I remember waking up and just screaming and like this thing with what I was perceiving to be maybe spirits is where I'd be sleeping, but I could see myself sleeping or I'd be sleeping, but I, there'd be like one eye open, you know, and I could see the spirits in the room or if it's like a spirit walks across a room while I'm sleeping, it's only recently I'm like, oh, that's not a dream, you know? But at the time, like I was having a lot of fear in my space and in, and I think that was a really big jolt was um, being revisited by these like kind of like de demon-like energy, really scared and having fear in my space that was pushing me to explore things that I had been, been putting down because when I was a child, I had night terrors and I would go into trance and be in the vortex and be talking and oh they're coming they're here you know and but not really understanding what that was and then when I left you know being able to start over in one's life gift right be, especially when you're at the bottom of the barrel and you're broke and you you know you've run out of unemployment you don't want the same jobs you had you've rejected all of your you know colleagues and your what you know is comfortable to go somewhere else and when I I kind of emerged into this rediscovery period. I was able to find new teachers and that's when I found Lilydale. And so I did work study there a couple summers and worked with healers and, and psychics and mediums and, you know, just like really exploring it with a fresh mind and starting to understand and understanding and learning. Um, I went to spirit weavers and, you know, learned from shaman grandmother Teresa, who like, oh, I'd love to join your, you know, love circle. And she's like, well, what about the grief circle? I'm like, I don't know what that is. You better come to the grief circle. So, you know, and those were teachers and those were experiences and, and rituals and things that I had never had before that I needed to access and understand and, you know, understanding contracts or, you know, the Akashic records or all of these. And tarot even was not introduced to me till after, till 2014. So like after I left everything everything comfort I left my cats my you know family member like everything friends community members neighbors everything that was so stabilizing and to have everything completely just whoop, like nothing stable anymore how did you deal with the social element of adobe books <laughs> that's how I had adobe oh really yeah did you feel like there was I couldn't go to openings. I'm, I couldn't go to the museum. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Did you feel like people were talking shit about you? Total. Like, how did you? Oh, they were. No, they actually were. It wasn't a fantasy. Yeah. Like, and, and I would even just joke, like, will y'all turn off your relationship television for a minute? Like, 
I go watch your own show. I see. Yeah. So you were like in a, a song about haters, basically. Even now, like I go, it's only recently I've been able to go to the Minnesota Street Projects. I didn't go to certain venues for many years because there were people that I thought were my friends or colleagues. I'd be like, oh, hey. And it was like, you know, it's like. And my question is, do you think if you had been a man and the roles had been reversed, do you think the judgment would have been, and I'm thinking of another situation where women in leadership, yeah, women in leadership where something goes south or even like Anne Hathaway, when she was getting all that half a hate to really target like these female characters in our world where they're supposed to be nurturing and mothering and God forbid they make a mistake. People are just waiting for this like scapegoat to pounce on to project all of their shit onto. And I mean, I'm sure you're now looking back, maybe would have done things slightly differently, but you can't ever know what it's like to be someone. But do you feel like it was gendered at all? I guess is the question. I think that the gender aspect of leadership and being a woman in power is very complicated because like, we talked about earlier with beauty standards or youth standards or even language standards for how one is received publicly, you have to have your shit together. And that is very nuanced as a woman because especially these expectations of, oh, are you going to have a baby? Oh, you're going to change your last name? Or, oh, you know, it's like, who would even ask a man any of those questions, right? Or like, who would even consider that that's part of someone's career issues or things that might be challenging for them. So I I don't know if that was gendered, but there was a sexism in my job, my second job and the job that I left. And that was really strange. But just an intolerance of women to step out of this role through either cheating, which the man's doing it too, but like, where's all that animosity towards the man versus the woman? I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just, he didn't have the same role in the community as you did, but he did. I mean, he, we both did. For me, it was because I was in, I had worked so hard to get where I had gone. You know, like I came from a working class family. I was the first person to go to college in both lineages of my you know, family. Like I come from farmers and, and mechanics and tree trimmers, people that use their, their hands. And it's, you know, and that's, it's, it, it, it was very discouraging to feel that all of that work that I put in over time was not valued. But I think ultimately that was just my own judgment on myself and that people's attitudes or behaviors, like I unfortunately maybe looked too hard at the negative and wasn't necessarily fixated on on the, the people that were standing me up. Like I had a trustee who I had to go to the SICA opening and it was right in the middle of this dramatic divorce. And I had to go up on stage and speak. And, and she just was like, no one cares just be you and you get up on stage, you keep delivering the work that you're doing. And the outcasting I think is interesting because I think it is something that maybe I did to myself. And that's why I said Adobe Books because it was, that was the place that I felt good being me after I was done being the old me. And the people who were supporting me were people that I just met, that we were in union creating this new organization together. We had just moved the store. It was exciting. It was interesting. It was no map, no roadmap. I was invited as an artist to do projects with, you know, Justin Hoover invited me to do a performance with him as part of map and one, you know, and, and that was really cool. There were so many people that were so inclusive of me in this new role of me. 
and and you know Marie Jensen, who's the ED of SoMarts now at the time, was doing ARPAD, and you know she was an incredible colleague and friend to me. And there were so many good people that I can't focus on. I, I mean, yes, to answer your question, but I don't. It's just kind of irrelevant because I am so happy with where things have ended up and the projects that I've taken on. It's so amazing when at any point in your life you're able to find a community that reflects your values. I mean, not to oversimplify it, but to if you're like what I prioritize is being able to make authentic choices in my love life, in my vision of self without being attacked by a case of the shoulds, you know, and to have, to be able to choose Adobe books, to be able to choose a partnership that works, finding that reflection again is, is vital. Oh, I think my child is about to come storm. Um, I just, I hear him coming in. Hi. Hello. I already threatened my mom. I'm like, you're not allowed to come in your bedroom. What were you saying, Liz? Because you said something that, about maybe authenticity or choosing. Your body just slows down and relaxes when you feel like you can bring what you actually are that rather than what you should be. You know, there's this sense of relief, just like full embodied relief that, you know. Yeah, you have to work less hard at just being yourself. For me, like I worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers for a while and nothing about that job aligned with who I was. And so I just felt like every day I was stepping into a suit of corporate armor to be the person that they needed me to be. And it was exhausting. I would take naps at work because I would just be so drained from this environment. It's like the, my year of rest and relaxation, when she falls asleep in the supply closet at the gallery she's working at. Have you read that? Oh, that's funny. I, re I recommend it. No, I understand what you're saying. It is a privilege to find environments that reflect that. I'm not actually being really paid right now. So, but I mean, is it even a privilege to be employed? I think it's a, it's a privilege to be employed by an organization that you do have shared values and are an authentic part of that. It's, that is a really privileged thing. Well, what I would say though, is that there were people at PwC that it was their calling to be there. And they were like peas in a pod. It was 100% in line with their vision of their life. And so while I agree that it's a privilege to have a job at all and to be able to choose what job you have, I do think we should all have the freedom and the agency to find the thing that matches us. Because I don't think that we would all choose art. Like my mom is very creative. She's an awesome painter would never choose my life, you know? And like, it would not sit with her well. She loves putting on the outfit, going into work, having the team, having the structure, yelling at people after drinking a couple of coffees. So I do feel like there's this idea that we would all want the one thing, but like we wouldn't. Not that like corporate America doesn't need to be fixed, but just to play devil's advocate. We're talking about things that are so everyone can relate to in some way, right? Even if you're not in relationship romantically or intimate, like all in relationship and we're all in relationship with other humans. We're all in relationship with the earth. We're in relationship with ourselves. We're in relationship with money. What I'm, what I'm understanding you saying is that it's, it's different for everybody. 
and my my hope is that that with whatever your circumstances that you find those things and those threads and those connections that do work for you and, and nourish you and so I wasn't 10 years ago I wasn't in relationship to myself and I think that that is that's been the huge change and the huge shift is is that a friend of mine had a dream about me and we actually didn't know each other very well her dream was that I was on stage and giving some sort of performance. She was like, I didn't realize you knew so many people and there's a lot of people in the theater. And she said, then you finished your performance and and you stood up and everyone clapped and it was, everyone was really excited and and that you walked off the stage. And, and after you walked off the stage, that the chair you were sitting on got up and followed you off the stage. And then everyone went crazy in the, you know, in the audience. And I was like, yep, yep. Like that's it because it's, it's this idea that the first teacher that I came into as the shift occurred, my acupuncturist, she she described it as a splintering of self. There's all these splinters of ourselves so that when you look right, you know, there might be part of you that is splintered off that's going backwards. So that ideally that we're in this moment of, of a continual evolution where that we become unsplintered and whole and that if I'm going off stage that all of me is going with me. Recuperating pieces of yourself that you maybe were leaving behind or neglecting better boundaries and through my meditation practice and visualization and setting up my space and bringing all of me into me and with me so that you're not so open to influence of things that maybe aren't yours things or experiences that you know maybe oh I'll just you know lend part of myself to this even though I'm not really into it but that all of me is is together now and that I'm making decisions based on this dedication to authenticity and being whole And just to circle it back to the concept of elder, this is what I am talking about, where I want somebody who has gone through many iterations of self and iterations where you have tried, where you have said, I will actualize following this path and you get to a goalpost and then you think, nope, (laughs) that this goalpost did not do what I thought it was going to do. But like that is an irreplaceable type of wisdom. It can't be replaced by intellectual knowledge of therapy modalities. There is a a wisdom in having gone through things like that and having failed and transitioned and survived and faced with extreme judgment. You know, every time you go through a massive transition, you get put in the hot seat. Some of it's real, some of it's of your own invention, but when you make choices, that are anti-stability and anti the things that other people hold as the scaffolding of their own lives, you get judged to hell and back. Then you get to find new things to then lean into that, that are scary. And you go into a new cycle, I, I think, and that's where I'm at. And then there's more, there's more. It's not like I've reached consciousness. Thanks. There's the process of communicating that to others. And I think you relearn it by having to explain it. There's something you can know, but then having to put words around it is like its own experience. And I feel like you probably get more insight, even just talking now, having to articulate like what happened, you like can identify areas where, oh, maybe I was more involved in that than I thought, or maybe that was more mine than I thought. Yeah. And and even going back to this idea of like the female or the woman, female energy or whatever it is uh, in leadership 
roles. You know, San Francisco doesn't have a great experience with with necessarily embracing women leaders. Like there is a lot of critical feedback given to women. I'm just going to talk about the Toby books again because it's such an awesome, weird place. But because of all this toxicity that I've lived through, through arts and specifically San Francisco, because that's where I've been the last 20 years, is that when we started our nonprofit this past year and people come in and they want to be on a, oh, I'd love to be on your board. I'm like, what board? Like, it doesn't exist now. As of now, there is no board. It's just, if you want to make a decision, you volunteer and you put in a certain amount of time, like I think it's three hours a month, and you can be a part of the decision-making process. But there's no board. There's no power over. There's no power over the people who are like the teachers or the students or the artists or there's the the constituents, the the audience. This orchestrated or detached or removed power structure making decisions for a group of people that are being influenced and, and participating, that the people participating are actually influencing and making the decisions. And that and that's where unionization and all these things about empowering people and that these are very important because why be in these hierarchical situations where you're just a nobody and there's this fancy board of directors or whatever it is or administration administration that's making decisions for you so it's it's to me these are like it's a beautiful utopia when you can live in a situation where you can be yourself and be authentic and plug in and also like be with your colleagues that to me is like even going back to eldership is how I'm imagining being an elder is that it's not about hierarchy, that there's no hierarchy in being an elder and and sharing and relating. And and if you take all that off the table, we're all going to have a much better time. I would say no hierarchy, but also due respect for lived experience. I think that's the issue is we need to bring that back into American culture. We have no value for the elders. If you look at like Gen Z, and I understand like the the hate against the boomers, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, did they fuck up a lot of things for people? Yes. But what do they have to learn from this elder generation and even the millennials? It's like, I think youth comes in naturally so sure of itself, but then it's reinforced by this culture that we've created, you know, through media and whatever else. So they're having reflected back to them that, yes, you are the wisest and most important. It kind of feeds into this deprioritization of our elders and we need to rope them in to the fold of how we live our lives. I've tried to like flip that with specifically Gen Z by listening more and talking less. And actually, I feel like that's such a different generation. It's a whole other energy that is not the millennial and not the Gen X, which I'm a part of. And for me, being a good elder to that generation has really been about just being present and not even like telling them that I'm an elder because often I don't even look like an elder, just being present. And I think what you're saying is true. It's just, this is a different call to action is how I've taken it. And I, that's just been my experience working with with that group, you know, mm-hmm. the 18 to 24 mm-hmm has been about being present and and realizing that they're going to do things really different. And there's a lot of like, when you say something and they're just like, what? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, yeah, what? And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you're coming in at a really different place. And that's cool. I think it's cool. And I think it's weird and like very big challenge. I'm Gen X also. 
And Gen Z is less intimidated by talking to people in power, basically. I clenched every muscle that I had when talking to people who I considered to be in above me roles. It was very, very people pleasing. And Gen Z does not seem to give the same fucks about that type of formality. And, And it is honestly beautiful to watch because I will say that one of the reasons I stepped out of the art world is I felt like I could never be in my own power in the complete way. I never could feel as powerful as I do outside as I did when I was inside where I was always like supplicating to something. And, and I don't mean there was no role for that for me. I just couldn't access it in that world, like sort of a deference, a self-deprecation that was bordering on like minimizing, making myself demure, more polite, more formal, more this, more that, that I have felt so empowered being on the outside of that, where I can be louder and stronger and bolder and wilder and crazier and just feel a different type of power. I, I love that Gen Z does not have that same rush to smallness when confronted with power, just like around their physical bodies. I I love that people show their tummies. That's been inspiring. I could cry every time. And Gen X, you had, you were not allowed to show a tummy. A tummy, that was like a sin, a sin. I just got scolded for that from my baby boomer mother recently about, oh, that'd be really cute if you stuck your stomach in. Because that's, that's what we're taught, you know. I feel like the people that I've worked with, the young adults I've worked with, they do act right, but they but they don't act right for what I was taught to act right. There is a politeness in some way, but they're, you know, they're not afraid to call in because they have cramps or, oh, I, you know, have my period. and I can't come to work today. And I think that's, it's very empowering. I think about how many times like you did something in your lifetime that you didn't feel good about because you felt pressured to do it. Amen. I mean, preach. Like when I was earlier bashing Gen Z for their lack of deference, (laughs) I will say their approach to body image, not to stereotype again a generation, but like if you look at like watching New York's Instagram page and all the people who are clearly Gen Z, I'm like, get your fashion freak show on. I love it. Like just so wild. And just the people that have come out and shown themselves to be leaders culturally, so inspired. It's like what we need in that sense, for sure. Breaking down walls, genders, sexuality, freedom of choice, the the communication styles are completely different. It's just a new paradigm. It's literally a new paradigm of being that that I feel. And now if Z is the end, what grief are we metabolizing as Gen X so that Gen Z can even do their work to be the end? And I feel like that's what I mean when I say our generation is doing the really intense work of getting rid of things that we tolerated and that the new generation, that's what I meant when they look at you and they're like, what? Things that stress us out, like they're so in a different realm and it's so cool. And I'm very optimistic about the future of whatever happens to humans on this planet, but I just think it's a good energy shift. And I think that we are doing really hard work and I'm thankful for the work you are doing with this podcast and just even pulling things out of people that they're not comfortable with and getting people to explore themselves and explore modalities and get your side woo on because it's all part of us and they're just tools and it's, it's an exciting moment to be a human. 
Yeah. Well, I love that. I think that's an excellent place to stop for the day, but thank you so much, Heather, for being so candid and vulnerable with us. Thank Um, you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I'll see you out there. See you in the wild. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the woo.